you could start off healthy and call them boundaries, but over time, those boundaries can become walls and it protects you from the bad, uncomfortable feelings. But then you end up missing out on all the good stuff too. And, and this job is so cool. Like the work that we do with animals and the people that love them. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you're listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today on Dog Words, veterinarian Dr. Molly Eminger returns to discuss her first trip to the Femmund race in Norway as a veterinary volunteer. If you're new to Dog Words, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We Save Each Other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. You can support Rosie Fund by making a donation on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website, buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com, or buying our note cards featuring Rosie and Peaches and our shirts on BarkYours.com. Links are in the description. Your donations and purchases help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Any donation amount is greatly appreciated, but here are some popular levels. $30 provides a collar and leash for a Rosie Life Starter Kit dog, and $100 covers their entire kit. You can also support Rosie Fund by downloading, subscribing, rating, and most importantly, sharing dog words. Follow us on social media, even if you aren't looking for a dog. Watching and sharing the videos helps our channel gain exposure, bringing awareness to our cause and giving shelter dogs much-needed attention. Our free Rosie Fund YouTube channel offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and shelter dogs looking for their forever home. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions, especially if you have an idea for a topic or guest. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Today on Dog Words, we welcome back Dr. Molly Ebinger, DVM, who we have a long history with, and she came on Dog Words last year to talk about Iditarod, among other things, and has another race to tell us about. Welcome back, Molly. Hi, thank you. You also got to meet our foster, Vinny. Yes. Be honest, but your candid reaction to Vinny? He has a lot of energy. (laughs) (laughs) He's cute. He's cute. That's an apt description. Energetic and cute and a little too much energy for... I wouldn't even say some people. I would say most people. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. <laughs> it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. And you're someone who's experienced with all kinds of dogs. Yes. Yep. And so it's not just that you're skittish or anything. It's that's he's just he has loud a lot of personality. Face. Yes, you're gonna know when he's in the room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where did yep. Vinny go? What happened? Oh, yeah, he's yep here breathing and panting and barking <laughs> in my face. He has honestly gotten better in the months that we've had him. He most of the time winds down pretty quick once he gets used to whatever is new in his environment. It takes him a while to adjust to that. But you put up with it because of your other descriptor. He's so darn cute. Yeah, yeah I can see that. That's a boy then. So yes, he went from being eardrum shattering barks incessantly to now he's just asleep. Yeah, yeah. It's cool dog. It's like, okay, yeah. I guess... She's going to be here, so. And how you described him when I when I came in is exactly how he acted. So that helped kind of put yeah, me at ease you. as far as what to expect with him, and he, he did great. 
So. Yeah, if you just walk into that without warning, it would it's be like, I, I may lot. die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then this is it. This is how I end. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't think a podcast interview would be my demise. I've been to the Iditarod. Right. I've it, been to... It all ends now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So when we talked about the Iditarod, that was your first experience with Iditarod. And we'd had Dr. Ott on, who was an Iditarod veteran yeah. who you knew. And so you had a little bit of knowledge of what to expect and you loved it so much. Did you go back? I did. I went back. Yep. I, um, I went back this past year and then I, I got on the hook for additional sled dog races and that's how I ended up in Norway. You knew Dr. Ott had been and you knew what his experience was. So you had a behind the scenes beyond just, well, what's on the website if you log on to say, I want to volunteer as a vet. You right. had the straight dope. Yep. I don't know if that's the only expression. It used to be. <laughs> I had some behind-the-scenes info. I had, mm-hmm. I had talked to him on the phone for a little while before I went, and he gave me all the tips on what I need to pack, what places have laundry, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all those things. So I kind of knew what to expect as far as like a day-to-day life of it. I did a rod mm-hmm. vet, which was nice. But then the race that you went to a few months ago in Norway, what was that? So that experience was in a lot of ways very similar, in other ways quite different. So I try to approach it with kind of the same open mind I had when I went to the Iditarod and and not get too caught up in trying to compare them to each other because I knew it would be different. Mm -hmm. A couple of the vets that I roomed with at the Iditarod, they're from Europe. And so they had been doing these Norwegian races for a few years And they encouraged me to go, and I'm so happy that they did. So I did have, again, some Mm behind-the-scenes info because of the experiences they shared with me and their enthusiasm for me to go. Kind of like me prepping you on Vinny. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I had some expectations, but I've never had been to Europe before. Like, that was my first experience traveling to Europe. And um, talk about in for a penny, in for a pound. That's how I. That's how I do things. <laughs> I just now, you didn't do a group tour to nope. London and Paris. It's like no, I'm going to go to the Europe version of I did a ride. Yep, exactly. And work. Yep, in in rural Norway, where um, where everyone does know English, but not everyone likes to speak it comfortably. So I mean, and that was and a, the touristy places in Europe, the people who do speak English, it's typically an American accommodating form of English. We know what you want. We know why you're here. We want you to have a good time and come back and send your friends. Yep. This was a little different. Yeah. (laughs) This was more utilitarian English, and it can be difficult, like here in America, where English is our primary language, communicating about medicine with the owner in general, because yeah. medicine feels like the other it's, thing. A it's whole not like other you're language. trying to order a burger. Right. It, you're trying to like discuss and treat pathology. <laughs> and so that was fun. But I mean, everyone was very nice about it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they realized I, I didn't speak Norwegian, they were, they were very nice mm-hmm. and being accommodating. Yeah. But it was a fun added challenge. <laughs> Most of Europe, certainly uh, places that have romance languages, there's both enough overlap, but also enough exposure. Like if you go to Spain, you've heard a lot of Spanish here. Italy, you've, you've watched enough mafia movies. It, you, and, and again, there's French over, and yeah. yeah. 
We don't borrow a lot of words from the Norwegians. No, we sure don't. And I tried to do like the Duolingo, uh-huh. like learn Norwegian for several months before I went. And it it's so hard for me because I just feel like there's so many letters and, <laughs> relative to the sounds that they make. And I could get to a point where I could read it de- like certain terms decently mm-hmm. and kind of figure it out. Um, or even hear it when someone was speaking to me, but it was really difficult for me to articulate the words back. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, yeah, <laughs> that never got better. <laughs> you just so. want to practice the phrase, I do not speak Norwegian. Yeah, just English. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do okay. You speak English? <laughs> yep. That's what you need to know. Yep. I keep referring back to the interview, and I'll link to both your interview and Dr. Ott's interview, but Dr. Ott's daughter was the, and may still be, the logistics coordinator for the Iditarod, and they've got that down to a science. Yes, she so, is. And yep. so she's good at what she does. We should have her on. Yeah, she's um, awesome. So the, the what's the name of the race in Norway? So it's the Femenlopet. Sure. Um, right. Is the, is, um, and in English, it kind of translates to the Femen race. Okay. So the Femen race is what I say. Do they have the same sort of logistical... I don't know what Norwegians are known for. Um, um, so are they? Do they have it as organized and? Yeah, it's it's totally different, and I would say that's the biggest difference compared to the Iditarod is the logistics of how the race is run, and it it's totally because of the the territory. Like the the Iditarod is nine hundred miles over rural Alaska, so a lot of those checkpoints you can only get to in plane and snowmobile and there's no one living there. I mean, it's pretty isolated and it's taking place over two weeks along 900 miles. So you have to keep these checkpoints staffed in kind of Mm -hmm. a rolling leapfrog sort of order. Yeah. And we talked about how the lead dogs, the lead packs is like, boom, it's like, Clockwork. Can, Here we are. And they can move then, faster. <laughs> yeah. But then there's the ones that are lagging behind two or three days. So it's not like you just follow the pack. Correct. The pack gets spread out the further into the race you get. Exactly. So logistically, that has its own challenges. At the Femin race, it, it is done. It's a, it's a loop. So that in and of itself is going to keep the checkpoints a little closer together to, to staff. But... Also, all the checkpoints are off of major roadways, so you can drive from checkpoint to That's checkpoint. That's handy. So you would think that. So that was my expectation going into it. It's like, oh, this should be much more comfortable because I was under, and this and this wasn't not true, but the idea is you're split into teams, and each team has uh, an RV that you then use as like your mobile kind of vet station. And it's also then a place to to sleep and rest. And so that's kind of nice that you have a moving home with you and mm-hmm. you're not just like camping in tents and then things. I So I thought, well, that's going to be comfortable. And then um, because it's all off the major road systems, like logistically, it should be easier to move from one checkpoint to the next because you can just drive yeah. there and, and you can drive yourself. You're not having to wait on pilots and and other things and Um, the weather and the weather and then when the weather is going to play some some role but it's a little little different right Mm -hmm. what ended up happening is half of us were in rvs to kind of leapfrog the checkpoints and then the other half of us were put in um, cars that were just going to go from checkpoint to checkpoint but the cars that were given to the race that year were electric vehicles 
And driving electric vehicles in in the Arctic freezing temperatures. Yeah, that impedes your uh, your mileage. mileage. Yep. In rural Norway, where you have to use two-thirds of a charge to get to the charging station to charge it. So they didn't really work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was we weren't able to move the vets around as well as promised. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we... We kind of ended up in a situation where luckily everyone was safe and like got home safely, but um, people got stranded at different points in the race and like couldn't move to the other checkpoint. So my partner and I, we were the only ones at our checkpoint for the entirety of the race at that checkpoint because no one could relieve us because the cars weren't working. So where you were stranded, you talked about the checkpoints being close to major roadways. You were stranded... But is it different from being stranded in Alaska? You, like Alaska, you right. could be stranded, and it's you, your partner, and a shack. This was more of the stranded of just, um, oh, crap, we're in this together, and no one's coming to relieve us sort of feeling. But you're, we were at like a ski. But there's a quick trip. Yeah, yeah kind of. A quarter mile away. Exactly, yeah. Depending on the checkpoint, yes, you're like in a town. Like one checkpoint was at like a high school track field mm-hmm. so like you could walk down to the convenience store so, trapped but there's hundreds of other humans correct so you, right it's, you're okay. not so isolated from like a um like frontier mm-hmm. point of view you're just isolated in the scope of work you have to yeah. do and it's just you I and one other person yeah. to do it <laughs> so it was a totally different challenge than the Iditarod in that in that sense I mean I I was definitely more sleep deprived and saw more dogs relative to my time there than I did at the Iditarod. So like that was exhausting, but it it was for different reasons Mm because you weren't having to rough it quite as much as some of the Iditarod checkpoints. Were there any of the same teams in Iditarod that were at the Femin race? Yes. Yep. There was a couple teams. Um, Hana Lyric, she was at the Iditarod uh, last year, 2022 or Yep, and then she was at the feminine race, and she is Norwegian. So, and then Thomas Varner, he also has done both races before. So there, it's not uncommon for for the teams to do one or the other. I don't know if you can answer this, but is there a quarantine issue with taking dogs from one country to another, either? Europeans coming to Iditarod or North Americans going to the feminine race. That's a good question. I don't think. There is a quarantine, but because like if you move to England, you have to quarantine your dog for six months, right? I think it depends. It depends on your your vet paperwork. There sometimes you end up having to quarantine if you haven't done certain rabies vaccines or rabies titers at certain times. So I think part of them preparing for the race is making sure all that paperwork's in check, mm-hmm. so they can move back and forth without having to do quarantines. It's probably different from. Your average person where the government doesn't want to have to drill down on everybody. It's like, we're just going to say, no, it's a six-month quarantine. But with professional race teams, it's like, we have standards. We know what you're doing. We have the same signing off. I think it's the same for... Because of agricultural law and infectious disease transportation between countries, I I believe it's the same requirements. Well, I guess I'm just describing how I would run things. Yeah, <laughs> I were in charge right. of what dogs get into a country. Yeah, so I um, but that does that does impact for sure traveling between between the countries. But there is ways. There's kind of fine print to avoid quarantines and things if you have certain vet 
like vet records or like an international passport, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily look into all that when I went. You weren't, that, yeah, that was you some, weren't taking a pack of dogs. No, that was some other vet's job <laughs> to make sure they were here that. legally. <laughs> so, yep. Did you feel like a uh, novice because it was a new race, even though this was your third race of that kind? Because yeah. you've done two Iditarods already. So, yeah. So the Femin was in between the two Iditarods. Oh, okay. So you hadn't. But, but same. So, yeah. So I still felt like I was a novice because they're two totally different. Um, even though the sled dog racing and mileage and everything is, is, is similar and the mm-hmm. dog care and everything's the same, it felt like a brand new race and a brand new experience. So I considered myself a novice. However, I learned quickly Everyone else was like, oh, she's done the Iditarod. She's fine. She's done this before. And I'm like, I have not done this before. (laughs) Assume nothing about me. Right? And so so that was kind of fun as a growing in confidence is I was assigned rookies when I felt like, well, I am not, but I am a rookie. (laughs) So, um, so yes, that was kind of part of it. But then once the race gets started... And, um, and you start working with the mushers and working with the dog teams. Like it's like riding a bike, like it just Mm -hmm. all clicks back in. And it is fun from a professional point of view to just be like, Oh, like all the same problems and challenges and medicine that we're practicing on the other side of the world is all the same here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's the same, which is cool to kind of that part of it. And it doesn't matter what language the dogs speak. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that part is cool. And, and the veterinary team, there is about 16 of us. And that's the other difference too. The Iditarod to compare, there was 38 dog teams this year and 45 veterinarians. As vets, you are spread out quite a bit mm-hmm. between the checkpoints because of logistics. But at any one checkpoint, you probably have four to six vets at the Femin. There was like over 170 dog teams, and there was like 16 veterinarians. Wow. Yes. That's, uh, even if you're not good at math, you can tell that's a much different ratio. Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know what the ratio is, but it's different. Yes. And then because of the logistics with the trouble of transportation, like it was me and, and my partner, She, it was just she and I at the checkpoint. And so there's only two of us that's working 24 hours a day, three to four days in a row with 178 dog teams coming through that checkpoint. And that's huge. If you have a dog with an issue, that means the other person has to do all the other dogs while you're tied up with the one. Exactly. And you're yes. trying to communicate with someone who might not speak the same language. Yes. <laughs> so it was a challenge in a, in a totally different way. And, um, and that's exactly what happened. And yeah. so then, and then I was in a store, there's a huge difference between two registers being open and three registers being uh-huh. open. And it's a race. So yeah. people want to be efficient yeah. with yeah. their time. So that was, that was a challenge. And then, and then I also, then I kind of felt like I had a chip on my shoulder because then I also didn't speak Norwegian. So then I felt like then that was just another barrier when I'm trying to help people. And ever, even though, and this was a total me problem, no one made me feel bad that I mm-hmm. didn't speak Norwegian, but I felt bad because then now I'm asking, oh, and now you have to speak in English to me. So it was definitely outside of my comfort zone for a lot of reasons, but it was very rewarding. I mean, we helped a lot of dogs and, and mushers and but if you would have told me that that's how the numbers was going to work out before I signed up, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I, I, it, it, it was, it was hard, but I'm really proud. I'm really proud that we did it. Well, you should be. That It's, yeah. it's an amazing 
experience for you and an amazing accomplishment to make it through all that. And yes, you can feel insecure or inadequate. I'm just going to tell you how I feel. Um, <laughs> because you don't speak Norwegian in Norway. Yeah. yeah. But also, you're volunteering. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not like you took a job under, you know, false pretenses. You lied right. on your resume. Right, they knew I was I speak, I speak conversational Norwegian. <laughs> Correct, yeah. They, they knew I couldn't speak Nor- Norwegian when I went over there, and, and it was and it was fine. But to, to your point, because there's only two of us, one of us had to be, like, in the checkpoint ground all the time available for mm-hmm. mushrooms. So then when you had a dog that did need, like, we had a dog that needed IV fluids for some reason and and so then I'm trying to set so then I already feel insecure because I'm I'm American I don't speak Norwegian I have one of the musher's assistants helping me set up the IV line Mm -hmm. to give the dogs fluids and he was very nice but there's a language barrier and then I'm having to like teach him how to assist me so I'm like trying to teach him how to like hold the dog and like roll off the vein so I can place the IV catheter to run the fluids and, and I'm tired. And are you thinking about how many sessions that took when you were in right. medical school? Exactly. Right. And so. <laughs> being and, taught by someone who spoke the same language exactly. as you. Exactly. And he's like being very, and we're both, both of us are sleep deprived and mm-hmm. hungry and cold. It's dark because February in Norway is dark. And so you have all these, <laughs> these barriers and I'm still trying to, because I'm feeling insecure because of the language issue and everything, I, I'm trying to emote confidence. Like, we, mm-hmm. we're going to get this taken care of. You're doing great. Hold off just like this. But then something as simple as, like, the IV catheter is different. And you're, like, I don't even know really exactly what was different about yeah. it. Other And this is going to sound silly if you don't use them every day. But, like, the port where you attach the line was, like, on top of the catheter instead of on the end. Which I know doesn't mean a lot to anybody. But it's one of those things, it's like when you're trying to like spell a word and you're just looking at it and you know it's wrong, but you don't know how to fix it. That was me in that scenario. (laughs) So it's like, I can't even do this. And it was fine. And the dog was fine. But um, So yeah, you have your outlet and someone says, here's the plug. It's Well, that's not the way the plugs are in Kansas City. Exactly. And then I'm like sitting here like, I promise I'm a real doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I do actually know what I'm doing, even though it seems like I don't right now. (laughs) But just the, you're under pressure, and again, you said sleep deprived. Yeah. Just those little things where your brain typically doesn't have to process something, that it already has this neural pathway that automatically takes care of that information. For me, it's when you are having to enter your password on your television Mm-hmm. And the layout of the keyboard is not alphabetical, or it is alphabetical yes. instead of it's shaped instead like of the QWERTY. keyboard. Yeah, but it's not in QWERTY. Yep. It's yeah. Like, well, wait. That's I have to, and this shouldn't be hard because it's alphabetical. It should be fine. My but brain, your brain knows the alphabet. But your brain just like buffers, and you're like, "This is not what I was expecting." Mm-hmm. When you're already like pushed. <laughs> to that mm-hmm. point that you can't just process any new information. This should be the easy part of it. <laughs> yes, this should be the easy part. I've done this the hard is... part, the diagnosis. Right. And, yeah, and, and we got the supplies, and we got the things, and... and like this should be the easy part. And so, it, yeah, it was just a, it was wild. It was wild. But it felt really good at the end of the race. We all got together and kind of, and sharing these stories and, and, 
and I've never been that sleep deprived before. I mean, I, I got to the point, you know, they always say like, oh, carry a notebook on you. And I'm like, I don't have time to write things down. <laughs> like, you know, but then I, if I have time to write. I have time to sleep. Exactly. And so that's kind of where I was at. But then about day three of no sleep, you don't have any short term memory at all. Mm-hmm. And so like I would be at one end of the field, someone would tell me something, I'd go to the other and it, it was gone. And and that and so I started using the notebook and I wrote everything down because your short-term memory was just gone. I've and I've never I and I work emergency, I work nights. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm mama and I'm like, I don't need sleep. I got energy drinks and coffee, I'm good. That was a whole other experience. <laughs> Did your partner speak? Norwegian. Yeah, she, what languages did she your was? Pick she speak? was Norwegian. Okay. So that was the other thing is that she was driving because she was she was Norwegian, and so she she could drive, and so we kind of bounced between a couple checkpoints, and bef- and we didn't really understand what the transportation issue was with the other vets. So at any point in time, we kind of had to be ready to drive to the next checkpoint. Well, like she needs to sleep. Because, like, if one of us are sleeping, it needs to be her. Because at any point in time, like, Mm -hmm. we need to drive. And she cannot drive on cold, snowy, dark mountain roads (laughs) on no sleep in two Mm -hmm. days. Like, that's not safe. But she was great. I mean, she was was awesome. I was really fortunate that we, I mean, everyone I worked with was was great. But for to be stuck in... And an RV in the cold together for three to four days. Like, I think we paired up well. <laughs> of the 16 vets, how many were not Norwegian? Um, I, I would say about half. So there was, there was another vet who I met at Iditarod who was American. She, she's from Colorado. And then, um, and then I would say there was like six or seven Norwegian vets. And then everyone else was from other places in Europe. And, and that was also really cool just to connect with other vets from around the world and just share what we do with each other. Mm-hmm. And because it is neat to see how similar things are, even though you're on total different sides mm-hmm. of the world. That was really cool. They're, yeah, they're telling the same experiences that they have with patients and patients clients. and clients. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, so that was that was really it really filled my cup. <laughs> I know about the Iditarod. I've known about the Iditarod. Pretty much all my life, since I was old enough to watch television, you know about the Iditarod. Yes. Never heard of the Femin race. How many other races are there, and how many of them are you going to go to? Yeah, that's a good question. The Femin race is a big deal in in Norway, and and then there's the Finnmark. So the Femin is only it's only six hundred kilometers. Well, that's all. Yeah, I mean it's so it's about half, it's about half the length of the Iditarod. The Finnmark is the bigger race and it, it goes on at the same time as the Iditarod and it is close to close to a thousand miles. However long that is in, is in kilometers. I get the I get the numbers mixed up, but mm-hmm. it's the true Iditarod equivalent. The Femin race I think is the largest dog they they brag that they're the largest dog race because of the number of entries, not necessarily the length of the race. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Finmark is comparable to the Iditarod in race length. And that's a race I'd like to be a part of someday. It it does occur at the same time as the Iditarod, so you can't do both. Like this year, I did both the Femin and the Iditarod. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some planning at some point, but I'd like to do that race. Last time you were on, you talked about the Iditarod sort of opening your eyes to saying yes to things. Mm-hmm. Have there been other experiences that you can talk about? Yeah, I... To be honest, and I, that's kind of what I was thinking of 
preparing for this interview is like, yeah, what was the thing to take away this year? And and I'll lump the feminine and the Iditarod together because I did the feminine race. I came home for two weeks and I went to the Iditarod. So in my mind, it was kind of one big So you came experience. home and slept for 14 days. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, got on a plane. And I turned around and did it again. So, um, and and I think the the kind of the takeaway I had this year from the sled dog experience is the importance of vulnerability. The veterinary profession it can be quite isolating, and I think that's part of why it's not always sustainable for a lot of people. And part of it's normal. I mean, when you kind of go through the highs and lows of of a um, of a typical day as a veterinarian, you can't emotionally go on that roller coaster with the clients that you're with. Oh, I mean. No. That's not sustainable. But I think what ends up happening sometimes is we we set these boundaries to protect ourselves from that so you can get through the day and you can be a professional and you can do your job. But I think over time, we can get too comfortable in that and you start kind of walling yourself off from feeling in general. You, you mm-hmm. can kind of get a little robotic and going through things because it's a defense mechanism. That's, how, that's what you do to kind of get through the day. But then it affects your relationships not only with your clients, but your staff, and then eventually your friends and your family, because you just start to withdraw a little bit in that vulnerability and feelings. And what I've taken away from these sled dog experiences and working with the other veterinarians, the volunteers, and the mushers is that if you allow yourself to be vulnerable, which you have to be in that environment, because you're so worn down, mm-hmm. like you all are experiencing all the highs and lows together because you're all cold and hungry and tired and isolated and you're relying on each other. So you have to be vulnerable with each other. You've, you've kind of created this environment where that's necessary compared to like day-to-day life. And it's so rewarding and it feels so good. And when I think about well, how do I bring that back home, I think that's the key that I, that I would want to share with other veterinarians and people who work in the field is you got to allow yourself to be vulnerable with the people that you're working with and, and, and your clients. And it's okay to feel those feelings with your clients. You don't have to go all the way there. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's something that's been really important to me this year and bringing back, and, and, um, and I'm grateful for that. That's a wonderful lesson, I think, for everyone to learn mm-hmm. is vulnerability, risk mm-hmm. is, is scary, but it also has a reward. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you can start off healthy and call them boundaries, but over time those boundaries can become walls mm-hmm. and it protects you from the bad, uncomfortable feelings, but then you end up missing out on all the good stuff too. Mm-hmm. And and this job is so cool. Like the work that we do with animals and the people that love them is so neat and it attracts the best people. The best people work in veterinary medicine. Like I, I, I know that to be true on, all over the world. <laughs> and, and I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with one another to, to form those connections. And, and I'm so grateful for my experience with the Iditarod and Femin. But I also, there's a little part of me that's angry. That's like, why did I have to travel all the way mm-hmm. to the Arctic to find that connection? You know, how do I open myself up to just bringing that here every day? I have no sort of training or let alone licensure in therapy, but my guess would be you have to go that far, whether it's literal or figurative, in order to place yourself in that kind of vulnerability, mm-hmm. not just get a little out of your comfort zone, because there's lots of things you can do close to home that get you outside of your comfort zone, 
but then you sleep in your bed that night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's, and uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just tried, you know, Malaysian food. Yeah. And <laughs> then, great. But, but there's, there's a little bit, you have that safety net. And then, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the day, you know, it's like this kind of canned experience and then there's an end to it and then you like go home. Like you're, you're not, it, it's different to be pushed to the point, like, I can't go home. I'm stuck here. Like mm-hmm. this, this I got to figure this out. I have to figure this out. And I think there's a lot of strength in that too. To bring back, because some, some days at work feel that way. <laughs> I can't go home and I'm stuck here. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to figure this out. And I worry sometimes that the young veterinarians, when they feel that way, that's that then they feel like, oh, I'm doing something wrong. This Right? This is wrong. I, shouldn't, I'm feeling, be feeling, yeah. I shouldn't be feeling this way. So I... And, and my advice would be like, no, you're in it. Like mm-hmm. that, that's, that's how it is. You're in it. And that doesn't mean that you did anything wrong or this isn't the right fit for you or you're doing a bad job. That's just, that's how it feels someday. And you can get through that if you open yourself up and rely on your team and, and connect with clients. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that they're part of the team. And, and that's okay, I think, to show that vulnerability to get through it because then it makes that at the end, regardless what the outcome is, that's a shared experience you had together, and and that's important. That's a human connection, right? And not to get all, like, mm-hmm. philosophical about it, but, like, I think that stuff is important. I don't think we talk about it enough in, in the field. And I also think it's important that you noted you were in it together with other people. You, may, you were vulnerable, but you worked together as a team, mm-hmm. and you don't always get the outcome you want. Right. And in life, intent and process – matter a lot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't get the outcome you want, but if you have a good process, if you can reflect on it and say, I did what I needed to do, I did what I thought was best, and I had a good process, Mm -hmm. then you can move on. I I think that's so important. And then when you share that process, then with your team, whoever that team is to you, your coworkers, your, your boss, the client, your family, then when you do have an outcome that's, that's not what you wanted, you have that support then of everyone else who's, who's with it with you. And, and you don't overreact. Like, I got to change everything. Right. Up because it didn't. The, um, you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. The, uh, the story I like to share, and I need to go back and find out which golfer this was. And I may have shared this on Dog Words before. I know I've shared this with uh, lots of other people when I'm on the golf course. A golfer had shot a decent round of golf professional golfer, but there were a couple of putts that just didn't go in. They just missed the cup. And uh, if he'd have made those, he'd have been three or four strokes better, a lot higher up the leaderboard. And in the post-round interview, the interviewer is asking him something about, you know, sink a couple more of those putts. Look where you'd be on the leaderboard. Is that what you're going to work on, you know, for tomorrow? And his response was, no, I putted great today. Yeah. I hit the putt on the line. I liked my read. My pace was good. Sometimes putts don't go in. Yeah. And if I spend the evening trying to figure out what's wrong with my putting, I'm going to do worse tomorrow because I'm trying to fix something that's not broken. I'm trying to modify a process that is good. Mm -hmm. And there's other things I need to focus on. And I think that's a great lesson in life is get comfortable with your process, trust your process, and... 
don't become too obsessed with the outcome. I think that's an excellent metaphor. I 100% agree, 100%, especially within when you're working in, with animals mm-hmm. and in medicine where things don't go like golf. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can do all the technical stuff right, mm-hmm. and then there's still just an air of, well. Yeah. And if he's fixating <laughs> on, if I'd have hit that putt a quarter inch to the left, I'd have made it. Yeah. Instead of, okay, what's my tee shot? What's my landing area on this next hole? Yeah, yeah. You analyze it, and then you move on instead of obsessing over, why didn't I get the outcome I want? Mm-hmm. All that's going to do is interfere with your progress going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So acknowledge it. Move, move on. on. <laughs> yep. Well, I am excited to get updates on Finmark yeah. when you do that. And, of course, if you go back to the Femin race and go back to the Iditarod, I want to hear all those stories, too. So I look forward to having you back. And anything you ever want to come on and talk about, because as we've just demonstrated for the last few minutes, we can take this conversation beyond just the great races. Yep. So, Dr. Molly Eminger, thank you so much for, first of all, for being a veterinarian, and second, for being vulnerable and taking those risks and volunteering for those races And, of course, thank you for being on Dog Words. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Dr. Ebinger for joining us today. Links to her previous Iditarod interview and Dr. Vern Ott's Iditarod interview are both linked in the description. A big thank you to alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks, for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. Learn more about The Wires, including their concert schedule at thewires.info, and download their music on iTunes. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Join Laurel and Sasha as they explore new music and delve into the inspiration behind each work as hosts of Sound Currents on 91.9 Classical KC. Click on the Sound Current links in the description for more information. Go to rosyfund.org to shop and get links to our social media. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share Dog Words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via the contact form at rosyfund.org and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor or a guest of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening to Dog Words, and remember, we save each other. <laughs>